Would you like to reach our film and TV review podcast audience? Do you have a product or service of interest to film and TV home consumers or followers of the entertainment industry? Have a film or show production to publicize? For affordable price plans for all budgets, get in touch and find out about our introductory advertising options. Reach our audience of film and TV viewers and visit our site contact page at filmandtvreview.com, or you can email us at business at filmandtvreview.com. Reach out today. Welcome to filmandtvreview.com. Catch the latest film, TV and streamed show reviews every week. The views and opinions expressed by the authors and those providing comments are theirs alone. They do not reflect the views, opinions or position of film and tvreview.com or their respective parent companies or affiliates. Film and tvreview.com makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information in this program and is for entertainment purposes only. Episodes may contain adult humor and language. For full terms and conditions see filmandtvreview.com. Hello there, and uh, welcome to another edition of Film and TV Review, and this is our December roundup. We've got quite a few titles that are reached us towards the end of the year, so I'm joined by my regular um, hosts, uh, Mark, James, and Richard, and uh, I think we'll welcome everyone. Um, I think we'll start with um, one title, we'll go straight in, Um, a Netflix thriller, I think, an all-star cast called... Leave the world behind, and I think uh, Mark, you've seen this. Uh, oh, I have. A bit yeah, about it. Yeah. Uh, doing quite well in the charts, I think. In the yeah, number one on Netflix at the minute at the time of this recording. So, hi everyone. Um, yep, yeah, the film I've seen, as Jason has mentioned, there is called Leave the World Behind. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's sort of a apocalyptic style thriller. Star, uh, a whole, kind of an all star cast: Ethan Hawke, Julia Roberts, um, Marshall Ali. By the creator of mr robot so if you've seen the tv tv series mr robot um and you enjoyed that it's by the creator of that so the premise in essence without any spoilers the premise is sort of julia roberts is the mother of a family ethan hawke's the father they decide to book a weekend away like airbnb sort of style to go to um you know like a weekend retreat in a kind of um yeah in a, a villa that kind of thing um as they are there uh unusual events start happening so and that's what drew me in actually the tr- watching the trailer um so one of the first things that happens they're, they're near a beach they go to the beach an oil tanker sort of um basically uh comes ashore like seems to crash ashore on the beach and they they decide to leave you know they decide to leave the beach or all the other families and what have you um as they then return back to their house in the middle of the night the homeowner returns with his daughter under sort of very mysterious circumstances 
Um, that leads to a sort of paranoia type situation where, you know, Julie Roberts and Ethan Hawke is the mother and, fa- mother and father of the family. Don't know if the, whether these people are the actual owners of the, um, of the Airbnb or whether they're imposters. The, the um, owner and the, his daughter um, are sort of having private conversations in the, in the basement, which seem mysterious. So it gives it kind of very, it's a very reminiscent of M. Night Shyamalan type films where there's this kind of mysterious premise. Um, it does work in its favour. So you're kind of, as the viewer, you're kind of intrigued to see what what this will lead to. It's based on a book as well. Um, it's quite, yeah, and that that's sort of its strength and its weakness in that the mysteriousness of the film keeps the, the viewer sort of drawn in. But at the same time, you know, you like films to have a beginning, middle and end. It does feel like there's a beginning to this film. It feels like there's a somewhat grey area, a murky middle, but the end is left quite open and that's probably where it may divide viewers, to be honest. Some people may like that, some people may find that frustrating. It kind of leaves leaves an, a lot of interpretation open to the viewer in some aspects. But yeah, that's that's in essence the kind of story. Um, Marshala Ali's character is a kind of someone quite wealthy, who's the, the Airbnb in essence uh, owner. Someone quite wealthy who's worked for like done contracts for the defense department and you see that he seems to be know about more no seem to know seems to know more of what's going on than he lets on which adds again to the mystery element of the film kevin bacon's also in it as a kind of um conspiracy theorist nut house type nut job type character but who's kind of prepared for the apocalypse uh when it comes along so obviously, you know, he yeah, he's kind of the person who's got like a, a shelter and stacking up food and supplies and that kind of thing and weapons. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of it's got an in, intriguing trailer. That's what drew me into watching it. It's quite good. Um, I, I personally enjoyed it. Um, it's kind of a stab at all sorts of different things. It's a kind of a stab at cyber attacks, you know, it, or it sort of gives you the um, the idea of what would happen if cyber attacks on a mass scale kind of occurred. Um, it takes a stab at sort of technology in some ways. There's a bit, there's a stab at sort of electric cars and things being potentially lethal. Um, and yeah, things like that. So it's kind of got uh, a lot of different messages in the film. But it's, it's yeah, I mean, some people say it's a bit Hitch- Hitchcock-like. But I would say for me, when I was watching that, I found it like an M. Night Shyamalan film. It's got that kind of feel and vibe a little bit. But with like some of the M. Night Shyamalan films, arguably you might say, some of the endings have been are interesting. Some of the twists are interesting. So others are kind of leave a bit to be desired. This one kind of you can feel um, can go either way. There's kind of a bit of humour in one aspect where the daughter of the um, family has is watching the last ep- ever episode of Friends, and then the internet ceases to exist, and she's about halfway through the episode. Um, so she's like the whole film is her trying to see the last ever episode of friends and being frustrated because she won't know what happens. And eventually uh, there's a comedy element at the end where she kind of does, you know, that's, that's resolved to a certain extent with a comedy element, but um, yeah, it's, it's a good film. It's decent and I would recommend it. And, you know, if I was going to give it a rating out of five, I'd say 3.5 out of five uh, stars on Netflix now in the UK at the time of the recording as we're talking now. So go see it. It kind of reminds me, it's kind of this end of world apocalypse like they Netflix did last year. I think it was like, don't look up. It was this kind of... Yeah, I was about to say the same thing. Actually, funny. I was about to say that actually, it reminded me of the same December release of Don't Look Up. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, oh so it's 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 interesting. It's kind of intriguing. It's yeah, it's doing quite well in the charts in Netflix at the minute now. But you know, it's kind of similar to a lot of other post-apocalyptic, um, you know, films. I mean, some post-apocalyptic films, there's there's sometimes a resolution to the the crisis. Other ones, there isn't. This is one where it's again left open-ended. So, is there a resolution? Isn't there? You don't really find out. Uh, it's kind of left to the viewer to interpret it how they want to. But um, yeah, it's enjoyable overall. It's enjoyable overall. So yeah, mm. but yeah, and similar to that. Seems probably. to be uh, popular. I guess it's the. Uh end of the year apocalypse since of the new Christmas yeah. edition of movies um yeah okay well thanks for that yeah. um, Impre- um impressive by the way that netflix has been able i mean i shouldn't say that because it happens more and more often now but to bring because i was reading what you were saying online and it's true the cast is pretty amazing to me so yeah. it's crazy that actually netflix is bringing so many people actually together to be honest yeah yeah it's true richard yeah it's got an all-star cast yeah it is quite they kind of got the group ensemble all star cast that we don't get in cinemas anymore because it, it seems yeah. it's it, and we'll probably talk about this in another edition but it definitely the, the way of cinema this year kind of really reflected how we've moved away permanently from the star power but something very talented over the last you know decade or two get to be utilized here so it, it, it yeah. was it's quite good to see them um you know utilize this way mm-hmm. anyway um from oh well, speaking of big star names our next title uh which is a big just in time for the uh, holidays is a remake of the world dial book another one it's uh it's really a remake Wow, yeah, it's probably oh, a, pre- yeah, right. prequel. It's a prequel. Isn't it? yeah. It's a prequel, Wonka, of course. And this is the prequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but this is more the early years of, of Wonka. And I think it's Timothy Chalamet, uh, Richard and Sh- James. Sh- Chalamet. 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 Chalamet, yes. I always say Chalamet and it's Chalamet. It's, well, yeah. I'm glad we've got a French expert on <laughs> So, uh, Richard and James, what did you think of Wonka? Okay. Uh, yeah, um, so it was a nice surprise because uh, for two reasons, I wasn't expecting much from that movie. First reason is that it's uh, a musical comedy, let's say, and I'm never a big fan of musical comedies in movie theaters, I insist. I like them on stage, but not in movie theaters. Uh, and also, that it, yeah, because I didn't really know if it was a prequel or it was a remake or whatever, I was thinking, okay, I've seen that already twice in movies. I've seen the Gene Wilder one, right, in the 70s, and also the, the one, obviously, of Tim Burton uh, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, so I was thinking, like, Spider-Man, like, all these movies that keep being remade, and so what's the point? Um, so it was a surprise because, in a way, first of all, the musical element of it was actually quite well inserted in the movie, in the stories. I mean, it actually didn't take me out of the stories, most of the time, which is always a good sign. And the second reason why I enjoyed it is, well, it's not exactly a remake again. It's definitely more of how a guy who has literally no money and has a dream managed actually to achieve his dream. So he's definitely before the legend, whatever you call it, call it Willy Wonka, uh, becomes who he is. And uh, I-, I like the message. It's definitely very naive. It's very, very family friendly. But the idea that someone with with a penniless is that a word, right? Yeah, with yeah. Money arrives on the shores of uh, 
of England and with nothing uh, arrived in London, etc. And as it's actually, it's funny. He, he keeps saying that he has nothing but what is in his in his hat, uh, and uh, and he just say that that he will become successful and he will only do one thing, which is make chocolates or whatever or sweets, etc. And that's all. It's uh, yeah, it, it, it's kind of uh, as I said, it, it's very optimistic, uplifting movie uh, about uh, the power of dreaming over uh, the uh, sadness of the realistic world, let's say. And I uh, and, and that part I really enjoyed. And maybe maybe it's the season. Maybe it's because the, it's Christmas, and maybe it's a movie that actually is perfect for Christmas. I don't know. But yeah, that part I really enjoyed. It's not very original because there are other movies like that, yes, but still, it worked with me. Uh, now about the performances, talking about all-star cast, it has good names. I mean, Timothée Chalamet is becoming a big name in his generation. Uh, uh, he was supposed to star in Dune 2, which is going to be released next year. Uh, this year, but it's going to be next year. Um, there's also Olivia Coleman, who is hilarious in that movie, I think. I think she, she was doing a very good job. Um, there's also Hugh Grant, who apparently it was controversial. Is is casting? I, I think people see everything that is wrong in the wrong places, in my opinion, because there is nothing wrong about his performance and his and his uh, and his role, but he's hilarious as well. Uh, yeah, and and Timothée Chalamet. So to finish, obviously, he's gonna be compared with again with Johnny Depp and Gene Wilder. Um, I believe that Timothée Chalamet does. A decent job. Um, he has become in the last few years kind of uh, kind of what DiCaprio was maybe in the nineties, in my opinion. Kind of a bit someone who is in his twenties, good-looking guy who actually a lot of girls like, and is I think for now at least he's been choosing his roles and his uh, movies in a wise way, changing between difficult artistic let's say, uh, a performance and blockbusters. Um, now, in this movie, uh, I think he's better than Johnny Depp because back then, Johnny Depp, was for me, was doing just another Jack Sparrow movie. <laughs> he was doing Jack Sparrow for the 10th time back in the day. I still believe that the best Willy Wonka is the one from the 70s, so wider, um, because he was literally almost inspiring when he was on screen. But Timothée Chalamet, yeah, I said, Timothée Chalamet kind of disappeared in this role. Uh, you almost forget who he is when you watch him. And uh, there are some scenes, actually, that you you want him to succeed over the big baddies of the movie. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's my, my opinion. Yeah. Um, bit of a tall order against the Gene Wilder one. So, it sounds like it's almost sacrosanct. But uh, yeah. it's, it's a good, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a prequel of sorts but uh is um is it the songs are good i mean usually you know when musicals are very tough sell nowadays but usually it's on the strengths of the song strangely enough there hasn't been that much on the on the trailers or advertisements they oh. almost shy away purposely but were the songs yes. pretty good or i, I, I think i think they are I, I don't know james is going to take over now but I, I think the songs overall i think they are pretty cool to be honest uh they were very nice and uh and, I, and honestly, I think he's singing. I think Timothée Chalamet is the one singing most of them, and uh, he's doing a different, decent job. And so yeah, yeah, no, no, it was all right for me. And I can see this movie becoming one one day a, a stage production in Broadway or in the West End in London. To be honest, 
Right. Um, yeah, okay. yeah, and I think, um, I mean, you hit the nail on the head, Jason, that the publicity doesn't really give away that it's a musical. I've got a friend who says that, the, I mean, I didn't, obviously it's a musical because it's Wonka, right? And in the second one, um, the second trailer they released, Hugh Grant is singing Oompa Loompa, but in that kind of way that Bill Murray's Baloo sings Bare Necessities in Jungle Book, like he's singing it diegetically, or is it non-diegetically? I can never remember, but like, like he's just sort of singing very casually. That's in the trailer, and in the background you can see some people sort of um, twirling umbrellas, but they really push to the back the fact that it's a musical. And my friend has got a theory that if people think know it's a musical going in, people go, I'm not going to see that. Even though, you know, from my age, I grew up watching things like Mary Poppins, which are musicals, aren't they? All the Disney films, all the 2D Disney films, Jungle Book, things like that are musicals. Um, but this is a companion piece, apparently, or has been conceived as a companion piece, to the 19, specifically the 1971 film with Gene Wilder. So the idea is that it could be a prequel that then leads into that. It, do, it doesn't sort of have anything at the end that, that directly goes into it, but you could watch it before that going into it. Um, and there are certain songs, so the Oompa Loompa song is in there, um, one of the other songs, which I've completely forgotten the name of, but a lot of the songs are original songs written by Neil Hannon of the Divine Comedy, who were like a late 90s sort of band. Um, and Neil Hannon actually wrote some songs for the early Doctor Who Christmas specials. I completely forgot this until I rewatched them this week. But they had these songs placed in um, the first couple of Christmas specials, which were original songs by him. So it's obviously something that he does. I, sh- I assume Tim Minchin wasn't available because he would have been maybe a shoe-in for this kind of project. But um, it, yeah, I thought it was really good because it's not... To be honest, when I saw the, the trailer, to tap into what Richard was saying about, you know, they keep remaking things, I thought, that's not for me. I, I've grown up. That's not for me. That's fine. That's fine for a new young audience. They'll want to go and see that. And I wouldn't see it. And I've got to say, there's something about just watching a film executed so perfectly. And this is directed by Paul King, who did Paddington and Paddington 2. And even as an adult, you go into, like, particularly Paddington 2, and you go, that's kind of perfect. There's nothing wrong with that film. There's nothing you could say about it. You know, it's what, it, and it is what it is. It might not be your favorite genre of film, or you might not be an a, a kid anymore, but it, it's perfectly executed. Um, and I think there's, there's a charm to it. Um, so yeah, Wonka sort of comes to town. He's like an aspiring chocolatier and he comes into, uh, sort of conflict with this corrupt trio, which is Matt Lucas and Joseph Patterson. Um, there's a corrupt cop as well, played by Keegan Michael Key. Is that his name? Um, and, then Wonka gets kidnapped by Mrs. Scrubbit, played by Olivia Coleman. Obviously, Olivia Coleman, I'm sort of watching her and Joseph Patterson thinking, oh, this is a little mini peep show reunion here. Yeah. And then later on, you've got Hugh Grant and uh, Rowan Atkinson in scenes together. And you go, oh, that's like a little, a mini four weddings uh, sort of thing, uh, reunion at the end. But I think Carla Lane's really good as Noodle as well. Um, and it's just, it's sort of, there's loads of, uh, British comedians as well. Phil Wang turns up. Uh, Simon Farnaby from Horrible Histories. Um, Tom Davies as well, who did the original Murder in Success film, which I think they did a, a US remake of. Um, but it's a film, it really feels like it's got like a, a sort of magic touch to it. Um, like there is something like an old school magical feel to this um, that just really works because none of it is really based in reality. 
I mean, Wonka sells hover chocks that make you eat them and then you you start flying. There's no there's no trying to explain the law of that or anything. You know how that works in physics. It's just it's just sheer fun. Um, but yeah, I I just thought it was really really good. The time flew by. It's it's probably is it about two hours? It didn't feel like that at all. It just sort no, of no, flew no. by the time. Um, and and Hugh Grant is very funny when he turns up. Probably about halfway through. I mean, to touch on what what Richard said. Um, I mean, I sort of always feel strange commenting on this stuff in a way, but I do think with this that clearly nobody else could have played that role because the Oompa Loompa is so small. It, it's definitely a fantastical CGI effect, and he, there's been a lot of CG work put on him. And that actually, this film, it's got a really, like in terms of diversity, it's really, really good, I think. It's got, it doesn't feel like, you think this this sort of film probably cast about 10 years ago would have been predominantly white actors. And there's a real sort of good mix, I think, in there. Um, and and that isn't really the first thing you think about, actually. It's only when you, I, I've seen things about the, the thing with Hugh Grant, which I wasn't aware of prior to watching the film. And I've seen comments on that afterwards. And it's like, but I don't, I can't really imagine anybody else playing that role and making it as, as funny. And the way that it's done, I think is, is perfectly fine. So, um, but yeah, other and other opinions are available, obviously. But that that was my thing. I just thought it was a really sort of like joyous, fun film, really. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's obviously seems like good timing, especially around this time of year. Perfect. Um, yeah. But uh, whether that's going to be reflected in the box office, uh, despite very kind of good reviews, surprisingly, it's. Uh, I think it might find its way. A, a general malaise, maybe, of uh, with films this year. The, so, the good the good news is that unless I'm mistaken, I don't think that that movie costs two hundred million. I think it costs less than that, which is which which is why I believe is gonna make money. It's gonna work to be honest. This thing. And the, the other the other thing with this as well is I thought about it's nice to have Christmas films to watch over Christmas. I think this might pick up a lot of you know once people have got Christmas out the way and the kids are screaming in the house and. Parents want to take them out, but go. Let's go and see that. And if you think last year, Avatar did Avatar two did. Sorry for mentioning the A word, Richard, but there you go. It did really good box office to start with, but it carried on, and it really carried on for a lot longer than certainly I anticipated. Anyway, I thought it's going to peak and then it's going to drop off very quickly. And actually, towards the end of the Christmas holidays, and then people haven't got you know it's cold outside and people want to go to the cinema. It might actually continue to be box office. And also, we're going into the sort of the period now where the writer's strike is going to hit some of the releases, if there aren't other big releases to take this one's place. And I think just maybe the word of mouth on it might get around. I, I, don't think, a... I don't think there is much competition. I mean, yeah, we yeah. joked about that with Jason. There's a Aquaman 2 release this week, but I think nobody cares, let's face it. So yeah. uh, I don't think there's much competition for the next 10 days. To... I, I think as well, when I was looking through sort of the year you know, sort of end of 2023 by genre. Actually, there's been a good mix. There's not necessarily been the certain genres where there hasn't been lots of different film. And actually, in terms of musicals, you go, well, when was the last big musical, The Greatest Showman, maybe? Do you know what I mean? And there is an, there is a, an audience for that. Um, it might not be my cup of tea, but it, it's, you know, there is a big audience for it to see it in in film form. So, yeah, but maybe they maybe they shot themselves in the foot with the trailers because really tricking people into like pretending that something isn't what it is unless you're doing that deliberately as a sort of misdirection to big up a plot point in the film or something like that like with gongo or something like that um 
I don't, I don't know if that's a big hit because there's probably musical fans who just saw that and went, oh, it's another remake. It's just like a yeah, like yeah. a sort of fantasy film without realizing exactly what it was. So, but yeah, I think it's I think it's really good. Whether the box office reflects that, and we shall yes. see. Yes, right. Well, thank you. So, yeah, we'll see if that has it. But um, we'll see. I mean, we, we, it's like I said, there's not much going on, but we've got quite a few seasons for this. Uh, December, January, uh, and maybe February, if nothing else comes out. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, so uh, word of mouth. That's fu- a funny term that uh, I think has relevance to our next film, which is, uh, of course, Godzilla. With Godzilla minus one. one. This is obviously uh, from another release from to- Toho uh, Studios. Of course, the original studio behind the 1954 um, Godzilla I'm sure you pronounced that, but it's basically Godzilla in and in, in the original uh, movie of Gojira. Indeed, right? Yeah, it's um, now this is actually a remake. Um, if when surprisingly in the in the age when we've had so many um, so many monster movies as a play and TV series, did we need another one? Well, it's from the makers. If anyone remembers 2016 Shin Godzilla, which probably until this point was. Well, I would say probably the best Godzilla movie um, so far. Um, um, of course, that's a modern setting. But here we in Godzilla minus one. Um, this is a post World War Two setting of uh, the aftermath of war. And the word of mouth. I'm sure anyone who's been online for um, or anywhere or on social media, it's been the word of mouth, and this has been phenomenal. Now. I wanted to see this, and I was wondering, do we need another Godzilla movie? Surprisingly, the word of mouth is actually spot on. It is probably, in my opinion, definitely one of the best Godzilla movies. Well, to to, to describe it as a Godzilla or monster movie, it doesn't do it justice. This is basically a study in World War II trauma, and it is probably where you're looking at, from the perspective of Japan, post-World War II, and it's basically how they are dealing with that after the loss of the war and and like maybe the first movie Godzilla himself seems to attack uh, Tokyo and other parts of Japan um seems to represent all the fears and and almost guilt of a post world war 2 um uh, world um it is why is it so good Funnily enough, I don't think it's just because of the effects. It is because you've got such great character work going on here. And it's been, it's it's a film that, it's one of the best, I would say, in a very, I know, very mixed year. It's been one of the best ones that uh, um, I've seen. Definitely in my top three. It's strange, but uh, James, what, what did you think? Because you've seen this as well. Um, yeah, I didn't like it. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I thought it, I thought it was absolutely astounding. I had no expectation absolutely. really going into it. Um, I mean, I obviously uh, in 1998, I think it was, we had the the Godzilla US movie from the makers of Independence Day. Was it Roland Emmerich? Yeah, um, yeah which were. apparently the Japanese called Zilla now because they say they took the god out of Godzilla. Um, I really like the 2014 version actually with um, Gareth Edwards. Uh, yeah, Gareth Edwards, I thought was really good. The the follow up Skull Island, uh, Kong Skull Island, I thought worked really well. And then Godzilla King of the Monsters is one of the worst, is in my top 10 worst films of all time. And that doesn't work, I think, because 
just everything's blue and it's very dreary and it, it it's really difficult in the is it kaiju is what they call giant monster yeah. giant monster movies it's really difficult to get that that blend of human drama and giant monsters because if you just have the human drama it's dull if you just have the dark giant monsters it's kind of just a, a mess and why should you care and it's it's really difficult to get that balance and in here i was really struck by how quiet the human moments are and how they weren't afraid to do that and then how bombastic and just awesome the the, the spectacle of of godzilla is just unbelievable in the cinema even though you know what it's going to look like and how those things gel because if you said that if i said that to me i would think well i don't think those things would work together and they completely do and after each attack you really feel like you see the human cost of what's happened i think one of the criticisms of a lot of films where there's big cgi battles and stuff is sometimes you don't feel the cost of what's what's actually happened and you really do after after each of these um but i mean this i thought the creator was even though people have forgotten that movie now absolutely deserved the best effects uh Oscar, because i think that that film did it so amazingly but i watched this and i was like this really deserves the best effects oscar as well because it's not just and, and it's made for a budget of less than 15 million i think which is it's easily got more more than that back but it just looks fantastic all the time it doesn't look like you're watching cgi it doesn't look like it's a man in a costume you know and it it's it's just really again really well well executed i think the actors uh the human actors in it, so it starts with a guy who's kind of back from war and then kind of follows him and he becomes sort of a um sort of a ostensibly like a, an adoptive dad to to a child um with his girlfriend or his wife um and then got godzilla's attacking and things and apparently the minus one is because it's something to do with at the point after the war that's where japan saw themselves is this right so i think that, that they saw themselves at zero at the start of the war and at minus one after the war and that that's kind of thing but again this is this is sort of a remake like you said of the 54 version and the, the question that we're always asking do we need another remake well if it's done well and and why not make something that's 70 years old and look very very different now to how it looked you know it was groundbreaking back then but it's they've done a different thing with it now i think um, it's basically it's, kind of a, a you say kind of used for, for a godzilla film it's basically used for the purpose it was supposed to be which is basically pure metaphor this is yeah. basically a metaphor for, as you say, post World War II trauma. It's at Japan at the lowest point. Could you get any lower? Yes, you can. Get any lower. Yes, you can. I think the original is obviously the fear of atomic power, and maybe, of course, it's the it's the fallout from uh, the two um, nuclear testing sites that happen on 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 Japan on, on those two major cities. So it, it is all those fears, and that's what Godzilla and maybe God and that that force of nature which a kaiju should represent and and that's what probably was leaned to in the original and what it mirrors here absolutely also interesting godzilla that was actually more almost there was those post-covid fears or pre-covid fears almost you can you can uh, look at it as you will but it's kind of like a more of a kind of like a pandemic is, is the shin godzilla is the 2016 one where you have this evolving biological force of nature which um, causes pandemonium in and out when out breaking in, into a city. Um, this one definitely because it's it's World War Two setting. It, it it is looking and probably it hits a nerve because we are quite uh, quite 
tumultuous times with, with war and it kind of would resonate quite well. And I, I think there's probably have an appetite for this film, but the word amount... It would actually make quite a good double bill with Oppenheimer. I mean, that's going to be yes. a long double bill. But exactly it's, it's, it's almost... It, it sounds sort of flippant to say that, but obviously Oppenheimer is like one of the biggest films of the year. But it's it's got that sort of serious tone to it. And when... Just saying that, I think, oh, I hope people wouldn't hear that and think, oh, well, it's not going to be fun. Like, it, it's a fun monster movie, but it, it isn't afraid to take its characters seriously and things that they're going through seriously. And I think it's better for that. I think so. it's rooted so, actually, it's actually looking at consequences and it is looking at the victim's point of view. I don't know this, most of it is, is a large part of the film is, is focused on the, the devastation and what happens, you know, to survivors. Um, and and like you said, I was exactly thinking the same thing. I was thinking, oh, this can sound so flippant, but this is just a great partner piece to Oppenheimer. It's it, it's strange as it is, but when you see it, you understand fully why why I'm probably I say this and I don't say it lightly. It is definitely a companion piece to Oppenheimer. In some ways, it shows devastation more than I didn't do, which you know, in, which wasn't formatted. Because Oppenheimer isn't from that. There's deliberately no, not from that absolutely. perspective. So this actually does work in in a way. There's there's a thematic overlap, but it's not like you'd be watching the same film twice. You know, in terms yeah. of the, the coverage of what it's talking about. Um, but yes, it's well, I would say a resounding do believe the hype on this one and the word of mouth. And for a film that did cost about estimated 15 million, I think the director said, I wish I had 15 million actually to spend it. But how much, how much is uh, how much what it cost? 15 million, Under 15 million. This five zero, no, one five, one five, one five. And do you know what? I think that I think that focuses people. I did hear on, um, a podcast this year, uh, an effects artist had written a letter in saying problem with some of the Hollywood films recently is that at the last minute, the studios change things around. So they'll change the ending, which is obviously the most effects heavy part. And they've got very short time to turn it around. And so it doesn't end up looking great because the, the turnaround time so, so short. But I think when you've got a, a, a smaller budget, you're looking after every single effect shot. You know, they've got a count. You know that you've got to go with that. And actually, that sort of ends up being better. There's some TV work that I don't, I don't want to mention Doctor Who again, but I, I actually, there's been sections in that where I've sort of thought this year, those effects are sort of looking better than some of the Hollywood things. Because I think they go, we've only got these many shots. So they're, they're kind of signed off almost like far in advance. And they, they just go with that. And I've just read actually here, it does say it's a finalist for best visual effects at the Oscars, which I think it really does deserve to take away. I I wouldn't even say watch this film because of the effects. You don't need to. No. It's actually you, as powerful. You don't think about them. I think that that's the thing. I, I think you only think about effects when they're bad. So <laughs> when when you see a bad effect, you just go, oh, that doesn't look right. But you don't feel that in this film. It's it's so well done. But, and that doesn't break your, that, that doesn't sort of break your suspension of disbelief as well. So if you're watching a film and suddenly something doesn't look right, you go, oh. I, I'm watching a film, whereas I never really felt that in this film. I've got to say as well, I was quite tired when I went to see this film. Like I, I'd sort of had two late nights on the trot and I knew I probably shouldn't have gone to the cinema, but I still went. And I was fighting feeling asleep and I still really enjoyed this. It so is. I think I'm going to go Why, and see it again. It is, a, 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 it is an emotional film. It really is. I was actually very tired of myself when I went to see it, but I said I have to, because it's had quite a bit of a short release run. I, maybe they should extend it, but I know in the States it's had quite a wide release for a subtitles film. This is obviously in, in Japanese, but subtitles, but it's had 
huge, huge, as in a very good uh, reception there. And so um, it, it deserves all the success it gets. So if you get a chance to catch it, do catch it. It's uh, definitely one of the films of the year. Easy. I'm going to cross the fingers it's going to be in the on-streaming service one day in France. Well, hopefully it will be. Uh, but it, um, hopefully with the word of mouth, it will extend its run. And maybe with not so much competition, it deserves, maybe it will have a longer one, like uh, give uh, films a chance to breathe because uh, it's, it's definitely word of mouth, which I think are winning, getting films through the finishing line now with box office. And certainly it was this year, both with Oppenheimer and Barbie, I think it was a bit of a phenomenon. But between that, it's been very few and far between. It's only the word of mouth, which tends to, and maybe as it should be now, maybe it, it's word of mouth. Um, anyway, so that was Godzilla minus one. That's two. Um, so uh, next, um, we cross the pond. Uh, Richards, uh, there are two films that you uh, wanted to uh, talk about. Uh, what should we start off with? You, well, there's a blockbuster you want to talk about? Oh, yeah, so uh, let, let, so this is going to be the five minutes of French cinema of this uh, podcast, yeah. uh, of recent French cinema. Um, so yeah, um, so once a week, I go to the movies. <laughs> after the uh, after the week ends, it's my tradition on Friday night. So three weeks ago, I went to movie uh, to see movies. There was not much released back then, and I came across a very good French movie. I didn't know it was good. Called uh, so it's called Soudain Seul in French. Uh, it's been released internationally as Suddenly, one word. Um, extremely good surprise. Uh, it's just I, I wanted to see it because there was like advertisement in the French metropolitan, in the subway, everywhere. Um, pretty simple plot, so it's going to be quick to explain the premises. Uh, just a couple, uh, husband and wife, uh, going on a world trip on the boat. Uh, they are south of the south point of South America at, at the, when the start, movie starts. Uh, they are taking pictures of birds or whatever. And uh, the husband wants to stop at a nearby island, which is between literally Argentina and uh, Atlantica. And uh, they stop by there. They take a smaller boat to get to the island. Uh, unfortunately, there is a storm coming, but it was uh, un unanticipated. And uh, they can't go back to the boat, to their main boat. They have to spend the night on the island. They do, and on in the morning, their boat has disappeared with all their belongings on the boat. So they are now stranded on an island close to Antarctica, so it's obviously very cold. And um, and uh, they have no boat belongings, nothing. So it feels a bit like a castaway with uh, Tom Hanks, but uh, with uh, two people, uh, husband and wife. They have nothing to survive, and they just hope that one day people will find them. And when I say that, it might sound like... Uh, an adventure movie about survival, whatever. But it's more of a psychological drama between two people actually who actually hate each other. Uh, and it's extremely... The performance of the two uh, actors and actresses is extremely well, especially by Melanie Thierry, uh, who plays the, the, the wife. So I'm trying to say, is she known outside of the borders of France? Well, I think that she only starred in one movie, English-speaking movie, called Babylon AD by Maciej Kassowicz in 2005, starring Vin Diesel. Great movie. Uh, that was the box office failure, uh, and that's all. Um, but she's amazing, that movie. I mean, she's 
pissing Gilles Lelouch, who is very famous in France only, but he's just doing his job. But she's amazing. I mean, she, honestly, she, what she does in this movie is yeah, extraordinary, to be honest. Um, and yeah, I won't say more of what's happening, etc. But you can't stop watching it because you try. It's like one of the obstacle after the other every five minutes. And you wonder actually if they're gonna first they're gonna find a solution or also if they're just gonna give up and like any human being would do. Because for example, I always surprised when I watched The Martian with Matt Damon, I never actually felt that actually he was stranded on a planet eight million years from eight million miles from here. Why? Because he never felt you never see a scene where actually he uh, he has a human emotion. What I mean is that someone who is in this situation should be actually wanted to kill himself almost and uh you don't see that and in that movie you see these moments that's why i really enjoy that you see actually a very realistic uh, uh reaction to such a terrible uh predicament so yeah i recommend that movie so much and for the anecdote for a little story that movie actually in the first place wasn't supposed to be a french movie it was supposed to be an american movie starring jake gillenhall and vanessa kirby uh produced by jack jake gillenhall himself but apparently he was uh, terrible to work with, with the producers, and uh, the producers gave up, literally, because of him, and they sold the rights to a French company, and that's how it, it happened. Um, so that's the good movie I saw three weeks ago. And then, <laughs> and then something happened last week. So last week, I saw a French blockbuster, maybe the only French blockbuster known internationally this year. So it's a sequel, to the Three Musketeers d'Artagnan released in April. And this one is called The Three Musketeers Milady, or My Lady, I don't know how you call it in English. Yes. Um, so, I will, not, I will not insult you guys by telling you what The Three Musketeers is. I mean, it's the very famous book, obviously, by Alexandre Dumas. And the first movie is actually a very good adaptation to this book, almost a literal adaptation for this book, since it's followed the story of the main character, d'Artagnan, who is a guy who comes from the... Like the in the middle of nowhere, south of France, goes to Paris to become a musketeer. A musketeer. He meets the three musketeers, uh, and he, as I said, he wants to become part of his elite squad uh, that protects the king of France in the 17th century. And at the same time, on the 17th century, which is true story, but that, that part is that actually in the 17th century in France you have these religious conflicts uh, between the Catholics, which are who are in power, and you have the um, Protestants who actually are literally a minority who tries to survive, let's say, and they so much so that actually that we create almost a, uh, their own uh, nation within France in La Rochelle in west of France, and they are um, these Protestants are a threat to the French kingdom because their biggest greatest ally are uh, the British people, the Great Britain, who actually are. They see actually that uh, thanks to their Protestant allies in the French kingdom, there is a way for the English kingdom to destroy for once and for all the French kingdom to sum up. Uh, so all of this is very well explained in the first movie. Very good movie. So two storylines in the first movie. The one about D'Artagnan and he wants to become a musketeer. He falls in love with a girl. Second storyline, the political conflict between, as I said, the Protestants and the Catholics and uh, the fact that the Queen of France is, again, is about the book, the Queen of France is sleeping with the Duke of Buckingham. So he's betraying her own uh, husband, the King of France, and the musketeers have to help the King or whatever. So that's the first movie. 
Now the second movie. <laughs> the second movie, I can't, I can't sum it up. So that's going to be a very short review because it absolutely makes no sense. I don't understand where to start. I don't know how it ends. I, I really don't know how it ends. I don't know. I, I really don't know how to explain this movie because it has been written by apparently someone who first hasn't read the book and also someone who doesn't know how to write. Now, I'm not talking about the screenplay, just someone who doesn't know how to write, period. And um, I, I was joking that if someone asked me who is the main character of that movie, I would not be able to answer that question. Yes, I can't answer that question. The movie is called Milady, and Eva Green, who is the play Milady, amazing actress, she is barely in this movie, maybe for 30 minutes, and I honestly don't learn anything more in this movie than I learned from in the first movie. So I don't know why it's called Milady. There's like four or five big names. It's a huge cast in France, maybe not very known internationally, but big names. Eva Green, Vincent Cassel, who in, internationally was like a... And he was in Ocean 12, if it helps. But uh, he's a very big name in France. Uh, he was also in La Haine, which is a very good French movie as well. Uh, Romain Duris, who is a very good uh, uh, French actor, very famous as well in France. But anyway, big names. But all of them have different stories. And I was saying, in the first movie, I think it was easy to follow. You have just two stories. Easy. Here, you have five different stories. And none of them have to do with the main problem about France and the Protestants. All of them are things that you couldn't care less. It's just that guy loved this woman. He wants to find the bad guy. Uh, Romain Duris character, he has his sister who is pregnant and he, her boyfriend doesn't want to marry her and say, okay, but who cares? And, and, uh, and then you have Eva Green who appears sometimes. And still now, I don't know if Milady is working for the King of France, working for the Duke of Buckingham. Working for herself, I have no idea because it's not explained. And yeah, it is so convoluted. It is so badly written. But yeah, as I said, you don't know who the main character is. You don't know why they do things they do. It goes from one place to another for no reason whatsoever. It's terrible. And then also biggest plot holes that actually people are joking around online. They're making fun of the movie because there are so many plot holes that you say, okay, but that couldn't happen because that person is dead. So how, how can it be now? It's crazy bad. It's crazy bad. I've never felt so embarrassed by a movie for a very, very long time. And uh, yeah, yeah. It's um. I mean, it's 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 from the other side of the pond. I mean, it does. It, you've got a very big international cast. You've Vincent Cassel, as you're saying, Eva Green, who's got you know, and they're international stars and fantastic actors. And you've got a great cast and a great budget I, I i can imagine this is not the style that french usually do they tend to do very much the homegrown cinema yeah. kind of shy away yes. the obvious big bluster maybe they'll do asterix and obelix and maybe they'll do those french properties but it does seem this is your version of the avengers and it, right, it's you're almost right. like embarrassing like oh they're, they're, they're dipping their toe there i thought it's a bit beneath them but they actually going for the big blockbuster and this all lined up looks like, okay, you, you're going to be doing this, so give it your best shot. But this already had a good plot from The Three Musketeers, even the sequel The Four Musketeers. These, these are all being written. It, it's kind of a no-brainer to do a sequel. So I'm really surprised. Um... It's a shame because, as you said, uh, I mean, France is not known, as you said, to try to play in the uh, heavyweight category, let's say. Uh, Usually, France is known, French cinema is known for independent movies, family comedies, or dramas that 
are successful at some overall seasons. Good for them. But a blockbuster with so much money spent, big cast, and trying to trying to do something visually stunning. And it is sometimes stunning. You have great shots of great French landscape. You have great fight scenes with uh, a, a camera on the shoulder of the of the director. Uh, they try. You can. That's the worst part. Actually, you can see that they tried. They tried to 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 be American. <laughs> they, tried, <laughs> they tried to do their their own Hollywood movie, you know. But they failed miserably. Even the even the blockbuster part, which is the climatic scenes with big fights, etc. Honestly, I I I would give ten euros to anyone who sees this movie. Try to explain to me what's happening when there is a fight because the camera is shaking so much, so many times. You have no idea who is fighting who. You have no idea who is winning the fight. Um. Yeah, it's a huge. It's See, the thing, though. I think we. We. I mean, I haven't seen this film, but when when people just go, we're going to try and do that. We're going to follow. We're going to try and do a blockbuster like that. I think they usually focusing on the wrong thing. Like having spoken about Godzilla a moment ago, where they've got a story and they've just done that, and it works as a blockbuster because the story was right, and they they've done it. I think when they go right, let's try and do something like something else. That never really works because they. It's like the intention in the first place is, but it all starts with the story, doesn't it? It all starts with the script, and if that isn't right, and also like the um the shaky cam thing, I that all gets lumped in as one. Paul Greengrass does that brilliantly, and he knows how to do it. That it makes it look like a, a camera crew has caught that in a documentary style. He does that really, really well. A lot of other people don't know how to do it, and they just shake the camera about. Expendables four this year, which was so bad. Um, you can't you can't see what's going on. It's just someone shaking the camera, and you go, "But that's not that just is bad camera work." It's not it's not giving me that vibe of Paul Greengrass. Like, oh, they've just caught something that's happened in real time. Um, so yeah, I mean, this isn't going on my watch list on your own. Day, no, 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 don't don't waste your money. Uh, even if you have an unlimited card for something, like that, don't waste your time on this. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not worth it. it, it maybe, it maybe drunk in the previous one. Service. It is the one before good because it's a yeah, yeah, yeah. The one in April was decent because at least the story was you could follow it. As you said, everything should be about the story before anything else, and the story was all right. You were just so it's like this simple hero arc. You have a guy who is like a nobody at the at, in the first scene. He meets other people. He's Against his um, against his will is mixed up with very big things happening in France, and he has to sort things out. It's a very good movie, the first one. I not a masterpiece, but it's it's a good movie. You feel you you, you spend a good time uh, watching this movie, and it's so weird that the second time they just dropped the ball so much. And the worst part is that actually there is at the end. I didn't know. I thought it was uh, two movies. There is an opening for a third movie. Yeah, woohoo! Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's actually this has all been written out already. These these are almost like three parts originally in the original novels. So it's a no brainer with the script. So um, um, well, I would actually. I mean, there's been so many remakes over the years, and and honestly, they um, the story's all been done for them. So it's very hard to drop the ball on this. But um, if you don't want to catch that, then I would say I would catch up on the. Showing that the Richard Lester ones from 19, uh, maybe 74, yes. 79, yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. 
it's called, I think it's it's the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers and then um, D'Artagnan. It's basically the three part. There is a, a third part to this. So um, it, it's coming your way whether you like it or not, Richard. But um, there are some other really great, uh, really great re um, versions of this done in the past. So just catch them up. I will try. And uh, I, I'm going to mention it. And actually, well, saying that actually that the Three Musketeers, yeah, was a disappointment. Uh, I think I mentioned that a couple of years ago, uh, there is a great Alexandre Dumas adaptation that exists that, uh, that I recommend called the, the Count of Monte Cristo that mm -hmm. inspired many, many uh, books, movies, TV shows of recent uh, years uh, in UK and in US. Uh, it's an amazing story and uh, the, the miniseries that he was part of, Gerard Depardieu of 1999, I think. It's a four-parter, uh, two hours each. And it's it's a masterpiece. It's really well done. It's it's it, yeah, it's magnificent. It's a really really good good job from him, from the director. And uh, the story yeah is uh, you will feel like when you watch it, if you never heard of Count of Monte Cristo, you will feel like oh, I've seen that before. It's just because actually it has been as I said it has been reused by so many other things like uh, Vivendetta or or uh, Sweeney Todd by etc. Uh, yeah, these are, these are all kind of great classics. So yeah, do do catch them up. So just just look in the back catalog, and you, you're fine. Anyway, uh, with that one, well, thank you, uh, James, Mark, and Richard. Uh, that was a bit of a December roundup. Um, catch us next time, and we'll probably do our end of year review. So until then, see you next time. We hope you enjoyed this film and TVReview.com episode. Catch the latest film and TV reviews, together with regular episode content from the world of film and TV every week. See you soon. Would you like to reach our film and TV review podcast audience? Do you have a product or service of interest to film and TV home consumers or followers of the entertainment industry? Have a film or show production to publicize? For affordable price plans for all budgets, get in touch and find out about our introductory advertising options. Reach our audience of film and TV viewers and visit our site contact page at filmandtvreview.com, or you can email us at business at filmandtvreview.com. Reach out today.